and, and it's actually been one of the themes that we have been landing in really for the last almost two years. The, the leadership here at Calvary, which includes myself and, and a bunch of others, have spent a lot of time thinking and learning and reading about prayer. We have endeavored as a church to be a church that is praying more and more and more and more. Um, and one of the reasons why we have committed to doing so is because we believe that absolutely nothing will happen apart from prayer. I, as a preacher, have come to understand that I can speak faithfully every single week and nothing will happen in our church unless the Lord is moving in the hearts and minds of our people. Right? We believe that, that we can speak the gospel, preach the gospel, and all manner of faithfulness to the word of God and to the Christian life, and yet there will be no kingdom work, no, no evangelism done, no new people coming into the kingdom, no salvations apart from the Lord working and moving. And, and, and he has chosen to use prayer as, as one of those means. So we talk a lot about prayer, and one of the things that I've, I've been coming really to a conclusion about prayer in is that prayer is really an amazing revealing of our hearts. You can tell a lot about someone by the prayers that they pray. Now, I know not all of us feel comfortable praying out loud. Not all of us do in, in public. And even alone, we might struggle with that. But I would invite you just to take a minute to think about the things that you have prayed for over maybe the last week. The things that you have lifted up to the Lord and, and think about the content of those things. What do they say about your faith? What do they say about who you believe God is? What do they say about what you hope for for the people that you've been praying for? And that may include yourself. When we pray, we are, I think, revealing our, our heart for what we want for us, what we want for those we're praying for, for the kingdom, for the world, and ultimately for the glory of God. It's especially true when we pray for others. I mean, think about this. What do you pray for your kids or your grandkids? Now, let me just say, I hope you do, in fact, pray for your kids and your grandkids, if you have them. If you don't, I hope you pray for somebody else's. <laughs> okay? You just It's something we can do as a church is be lifting up. I hope that, that if you don't have kids and if you do have kids, that you pray for my kids. And I hope that you pray for uh, Missy and Austin's kids. And I, I hope that you lift up the kids of our church. And the question is, is what do you lift up when you pray for your kids, your grandkids, or somebody else's kids? I mean, do we pray that they would be happy and healthy and successful, which are all good things? But do we also and perhaps pray for their salvation? Do we pray for their joy and pleasure in the Lord? Do we pray that they would delight in the Lord? What do you pray for when you pray for your spouse, if you have one? Or even maybe a possible future spouse? Do you pray that they would be attractive or wealthy or pleasing to the eye? Or do you pray that they would be holy and that they would help you to be holy? Do we pray that they would love the Lord? Do we pray that they would help us to love the Lord more? 
What do we pray for our fellow church members, the people in our pews, our friends, our family? For many of us, this church community is, is the closest thing we have to true family at this point. What do we pray for our church people? Do we pray regularly for their protection from the evil one? Do we pray that they would have everything they need from the Lord, that their needs would be provided for? Do we pray that they would delight in the Lord, and that their relationship with the Lord would grow and, and be fruitful? What do you pray for when you pray for others? And what do you pray for when you pray for yourself? I just want you to just think on this. It says a lot about what you care about, what you love. If you are someone who is regularly praying to the Lord on behalf of other people, what you're doing is, is lifting up them to what you hope for them, what you desire for them, and, and it says a lot about what you hope for and desire for yourself. How we pray for others shows us what we really care about. This week, I just invite you to think about that a little bit as you pray. Let that affect your prayers. <laughs> now, why am I talking about this today? Because we're in John chapter 17, and this is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And just like us, when we think about what we're praying for others for, revealing our hearts, well, guess what? Jesus' prayer also reveals his heart for those he's praying for. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, then you know who he was praying for. He was praying for you. And he was praying for me. And he was praying for every single one of those who would follow him in belief and understanding in, in the gospel. To all those who would be saved, to those disciples. And we see Jesus' heart here for his disciples because what he prays for them, for us, for are the things he cares most about, the things he is truly passionate about. And that should mean that we too should want to be passionate about them, I think, as well, right? So we're in John chapter 17, and I'd invite you to open up your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 10. And this seems kind of like it's in the middle of this whole section. That's fine. Um, a couple weeks ago, we hit really verses 6 through 10. We're going to overlap 10 through the end of the chapter today, which is a big section. And I debated whether or not to read this whole thing for us as a church today, and I came to the conclusion that there's not a single person in this room who couldn't use more Scripture read over them and to them. And so I, I want to read this section. And as we do so, we just need to sit in this. I want you to sit in the fact, in the idea, that these words are Jesus' prayer for you. And for the person sitting next to you, and across from you, and for the 20 or 30 people who aren't here today because they're sick. This is Jesus' prayer for all of us. So starting in John chapter 17, verse 10, let me read this for us. Jesus said, prayed, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, 
Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, that's the substance of this prayer. And I want to be really just clear and honest. I said this a couple weeks ago when I started uh, this section back in verse 6, that the reality is is this section of Scripture, John 17, could be a year-long sermon series in and of itself. There is so much here, and there's no way we can cover it in what Scott started one week and I have done now in two weeks. We just can't get that. It's too much. And so I invite you again, as I did a couple weeks ago, just spend a lot of time the next couple weeks reading through John 17. Hear the prayer that Jesus prays for you. We could spend weeks on just the idea that Christ, that Jesus Christ did, and is even now still, it tells us in the book of Hebrews and in the book of Romans, praying for us, interceding for us on behalf of us to the Father. We could spend weeks just on that idea. The fact that the creator of the universe mentions you by name to the Father. There's so much here. So what I really want to do is land in in what I think is is the end substance of this prayer, the, the big picture of what this prayer is about. And then we can talk another time or whenever about what all the details are. Because as I study this prayer, and as I've been in this prayer more than I ever have been the rest of my life, the conclusion that I keep coming to, that I've come to over and over again as I study it more and more, is that this prayer is not just a prayer for us, it's a prayer for what we are supposed to be doing. This prayer is known as the high priestly prayer, and that's a fine name for it. Um, but when I think about Calvary, Lahana, and I think about the town of Lahana, I don't really think about high priestly. 
right? We're, we're a little too humble for that. When I, when I read through this prayer and I land in it, what I see, and what I want us to see today is that this isn't just a prayer for us. It is a prayer for what we are supposed to be doing. And in, in that, it is what I would like to call the Great Commission Prayer. It's the Great Commission Prayer. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you may know, and if you don't, let me read to you what the actual Great Commission is. This is in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. These are one of Jesus' last words, the last things he says to his disciples before he is ascended into heaven. Again, like his last prayer, his last words should probably be pretty important. Jesus says to them and to us, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Right, that's the Great Commission. But back to John 17, what we see here, I think, is, is a breakdown into this, this Great Commission prayer. Right? He gives the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, but in Luke, he prays to that endeavor. For who? For you and I, who are supposed to be the agents of that. We're given this great picture of, of the commissioning. In Matthew, but we're given the empowerment, the prayer. Jesus is actively praying this prayer for us that we would be a part of his work, the redemption and salvation of all who will believe, and the revealing of who he is to the world around us. That's what Jesus came to do, that's what Jesus sends us to do in the Great Commission. Where do I see this? Well, let's take a look. We're going to start at the end of the prayer, which seems like a funny place to begin a sermon. But when you want to see what something is all about, we can go straight to the end. And in verse 25 through 26, I invite you to, to turn there. Look at these verses with me. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Who's these? These are his disciples. These are the ones he's praying for. These are those who know him and know the Father. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I am adding the emphasis on this idea of being known because that's the end of this prayer. That is what Jesus is praying to the Father that, that he, and through him, the Father would be known by the world. Okay? When we take all the prayer, this is where it lands. In this idea that the reason Jesus came is so that he would be known, and that the Father would be known, and by knowing the, the Son, and by knowing the Father, we would be saved. This is what Jesus is praying for. Throughout this whole prayer, you see a whole lot of that's and fours, okay? That's and fours. What that means is as, as Jesus builds his prayer, he's building an argument that lands here. It means that as you go backwards through the prayer, you find that what Jesus is landing in at the end, he builds to all the way through it. His prayer is that he and the Father would be known. 
And again, there's way too much here for me to cover throughout. So let me just land a few things. Taking one step back to verse 20, I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, Jesus' focus is on being known. And here in verse 20, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, we discover the means to which the how of, of how it is that people come to know him. It's through their word. It's through your word. It's through you speaking the gospel to the people around you. It's through you, disciples of Jesus Christ. Right? So his, his purpose is that he would be known, that the Father would not be known, but the means to which he uses is clear here. He is praying that Christians like you and I would be Christians who would cause him and the Father to be known. I want you to pause and just think about that for a minute. Jesus was and still is praying that you would do this. What does that mean? Well, here's one thing it means. It means that if you don't, you are actually taking Jesus' prayer and throwing it in the trash can. He is actively praying for you to do something, actively praying for you to accomplish something. And so by not doing it, you're basically saying, I, I don't like your prayers, I don't need your prayers, I don't want your prayers. Whew. I mean, that's heavy, and it should be, because Jesus is praying for us. I mean, he is actively turning to the Father and saying, Father, make this happen. And he's calling us to do it. He's calling us to be the means by which people would know him, would know the Father. And that's amazing. See, sometimes we get this idea that, that the work like this is only to be done by certain people, by, you know, the guy who stands up front and preaches on Sunday morning, or, or by those who are specifically called to, uh, with the gift of evangelism to go speak to people and share the gospel, or those who are specifically called to teach the little kids in the nursery or the kids' rooms, right? Like, but no, he's praying this for all of his disciples, he, for each one of us. He's praying that we would be a part of. It doesn't rest on us, right? It rests on the Holy Spirit's work through us, through all of the believers together through the army of, of Christians that have lived, do live, and will live until he comes again. But we're a part of that. And he's praying that we would be. And in doing so, he, he lays out a handful of other specific prayers that allow us to do this, that, that make it possible for us to do this. And that's what I want to look at kind of with the remainder of our time, the substance of the rest of this prayer that leads to that. And so what we need to think about as we think through each one of these is that this is Jesus' plan for making this happen. Okay? He's praying each one of these things for us. And again, as Jesus prays for us, we either embrace that and roll with it and go with it, or we ball up his prayer in a ball and throw it in the trash. I mean, if we're not willing to do what he's praying for here, that's what we're doing all the way throughout. So let me take a look. Let's take a look, all of us together, um, at, at what some of the other things he's praying for here. 
There's a few categories, kind of, a few subjects. The first is unity. The first is unity. Okay? We just saw that, verse 23 and 26. Let me read those again. We already read them, but let me do it again. Jesus says, verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now pause there. Jesus' prayer, very specific, word for word, is that the relationship you and I would have with each other and that we would have with other believers in this world would be like, just like, his relationship with the Father. Now we try to talk about the Trinity a fair bit here. Some of us have been reading a book called Delighting in the Trinity. It's one that I would highly recommend um, you read. And one of the things that, that the, the book highlights, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, the author gets to, is that, is that in all eternity, the Father and the Son have been one. It's, it's not just something that, that we've seen in the, the creation of the world, but in all eternity. There's a relationship between the Father and the Son that we, that we can't even understand. We can't even fathom the unity that's there. And Jesus is praying for that unity, that unity between us. His people. Do you crave unity in the church? Do you crave to be united with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Jump up with me now to verse 11. We see the, the theme where it started. Jesus says, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, the image that we should have right there is that of marriage, where the Bible says that two become one. We're not talking about our cultural marriage, but marriage in, in our culture that, that ends up being for a season or a time or contractual. He's talking about something that happens mysteriously within the kingdom of God between, between believers in particular who truly love each other and become one. Metaphysically. right? It, it, it happens beyond what we can see and understand and know. It's the reason why if we've lost a spouse, it hurts. It crushes us. It's the reason why we need to be careful who we join with. <laughs> it's the reason why, why we hold marriage to be so sacred in the church. Why we are willing to fight for the definitions of marriage. Because it's defined by God for a single purpose. For his glory. And it's an image and a sign of the relationship between the father and the son. Right? This is a big deal. Jesus says that he wants us to be one as he and the Father are one. And he says that if we can do that, this is how the world will know who he is and who the Father are. Do you realize our Christian fighting shows the world an idol? Right, if Christians are constantly fighting amongst themselves, what we're doing is showing the world this is who the Father and this is who the Son are. 
we might as well get a big piece of wood out and a knife and start carving and have a statue that says, hey, this is the God we worship. It's a false God. It is through Christian unity and love that believers have for one another that causes the world to see who the Son is, see who the Father is. Now, before we all get really depressed right here, I'd like to point something out because, because sometimes it's really easy to say, man, this is where we are messing up as the church. And to be honest, yes, there are places where the modern church is royally messing this up. But before we get too depressed, before we think through, man, all we can do, man, we've got all these different denominations, different groups, there's different tribes, there's infighting, there's quarreling about this and there's that. Here's what I want you to know. Most of that is really pretty superficial. Most of it really is pretty superficial. We think about all the fracturing, right? Denominational names, pet theologies, practices and preferences that masquerade as musts. Things like how often and how we take the Lord's Supper, right? Things like what worship looks like, what kind of songs we sing, what kind of instruments we use or don't use. Things like how we understand the sovereignty of God mixing with moral responsibility or the culpability, our culpability before a holy God, right? Is God responsible or are we? Different Christians argue about and have different views. You think about Baptist versus Presbyterian versus Nazarene versus any number of other things. I believe these things are mostly superficial. I do. Yes, I believe that the, the area where I've landed on those pet theologies, as well as on denominational stuff, is the right place to be. Of course I believe that. I've given my life to it. I still believe that much of these things can be very superficial. And when we think about them, I think they're actually gifts to unity. I think these things are gifts to unity. Think about it this way. If every single week we had 100 people in here and every single one of us completely disagreed on how often to take the Lord's Supper, on whether or not we should use the piano or the guitar or the organ, right? Whether or not we believed, some of us believe that you can only baptize somebody who's age 13 and over. Others of us are willing to baptize six-year-olds and others are willing to baptize one-year-olds. You know what's going to happen a lot of? Fighting. I believe that God has given us the boundaries and the markers and the differences in denominations and understandings so that we can gather together without fighting. And I think about Calvary. I think, man, there's a lot of different views here at Calvary about some of the ways that things should happen or could happen or what needs to happen. Here's the beautiful thing. I don't think I've had a fight about a single one of them ever on Sunday morning. Why? Unity. Unity. Right? See, I don't think that, that what Jesus is praying for here is that we would all just be the same. That we'd all be homogenous. What he's saying is, look, you guys are going to be really different. You're going to have very different understandings, but can you be unified? Do not confuse biblical unity with homogeny. The world is really good at homogeny, right? Like people being with like people. Similar race, 
similar socioeconomic status, similar upbringings, right? We get along really well, really easily with people who look and think just like us. I mean, it's easy. But the church is called to something different, to something far better. The church is called to be a, gr- a place where there is unity despite drastic difference. And I remember a couple of years ago, some of you were there sitting in my house at a community group on Tuesday night, I think it was. And we were 25 to 30 of us jammed in my front living room. And I just looked out. I think we were praying at the time. And I opened my eyes and I looked and I thought, there is no earthly reason why the people sitting in this room would ever be together. Right? No reason at all. I mean, even you think about most of our Sunday morning gatherings, there's no reason why some of us would ever associate with others of us by the standards of the world. But in Christ, we are unified. See, Christ can take that which is so incredibly diverse, so incredibly different, bring it together, and you can rejoice and be in friendship and family with people you'd have no business being with otherwise. I think that's what Jesus is praying for here. Jesus is praying that that when the world would look at the church, they'd be like, why is Theva hanging out with Dan? Right? I think that's what what Jesus is praying for here. Like, why in the world would, would people like this be hanging out with people like that? Well, because of him. And suddenly the world starts to realize that, that what we actually believe actually affects how we live and how we think and what we do. Who in this room do you need to spend more time with? Not because you have anything alike, but because you have nothing in common except Christ. Who do you need to make peace with for the sake of the gospel? Jesus is praying for unity in his church. I pray that we would be agents of unity. Not only in our little church, but in the kingdom. All right, that's unity. What's the next thing he's praying for for his people? Number two, he's praying for the continued protection of God in their lives. The continued protection of God in their lives, right? Jesus knows that if we are going to be great commission Christians, that there's going to be an attack. Here's what Jesus says, verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they, that's you and I, are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one, even as we are one, right? You see the tie of unity here. Part of the protection of God is to keep us in unity. He says, keep them in your name. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus says, look, I was with them. He's talking specifically about the apostles, the twelve. And he says, while I was with them, not a one of them was lost, except Judas, who is, even as Jesus prays this prayer in the middle of betraying Jesus that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What, what that tells us that Judas was ever actually one of them, so he could not be kept in his name. What Jesus is saying is, look, I was with them, I, I, I was with them, and I protected them. I haven't lost a single one of them. He turns to the Father and he says, I'm coming to you now. They're not going to have me right there with them to protect them. You do it. You do it. Right? He turns 
to the father and says, you protect them. Verse 15, we see why. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but, to, but that you keep them from the evil one. Right? He, he's praying for protection because we're still here. We are still living in this broken, fallen world where there are enemies of the faith, and specifically the enemy of the faith, the devil, Satan, the great adversary, the liar, the accuser, who is going to come at us. Earlier in the book of John, Jesus talks about this. He says that the, the, the thief, the, the enemy, comes only to kill and steal and destroy. That the enemy is seeking our destruction. It's a reality. But he goes to God and he says, God, you protect them now. Is there a safer place to be than in the Father's arms? There isn't. He says, look, the, the, the attacks are going to come. We still live in this broken, fallen world, but the Father protect them. The Father protect them. How does the Father protect them? Well, he's talked about this in the book of John as well. John chapter 14. I invite you to just turn back a couple pages to verse 15. John 14, verse 15, Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What's the Father's normal means of protection of the believer? The indwelling Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus says, I'm going, but another's coming. The Spirit is coming. Move forward uh, to John chapter 14, verse 25 through 27, just a few verses. Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is going. He asks the Father to protect him, to protect us rather. And the Father sends the Spirit that we would have our helper, our comforter, our guide, our teacher, who is with us forever, never departing from us. Amen? How powerful is that? Jesus is going, the one who was protecting his disciples, now they're going to have the Spirit who's always with them. He's praying for protection. Because he knows that as he prays this Great Commission prayer, he is in some ways sending his disciples to the wolves at least into the midst of the wolves. He knows that it's dangerous. He knows that there's trouble. He knows that some are going to fall away. He knows that there are going to be those who fall into sin. He knows that there are going to be those who get attacked and literally killed for their faith. And he says, Father, protect them. And the Father protects them in the best way the Father knows how, and that is to give them the Spirit forever. Church, even in the darkest circumstances, our good and gracious King is guarding us. He's guarding our hearts, our lives, and most importantly, he's guarding our salvation into eternity. We are secure in him. When Jesus says, I kept them, that's what he's talking about. He's kept them, and he hasn't lost any of them. And dare I say, not even you. All right, so Jesus prays for unity, then he prays for protection. Then what does he pray for? 
He prays that we would be in the world, but not of the world. That we would be in the world, but not of the world. Look at verse 14. John 17, verse 14. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Right? They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Church, we are called to, and Jesus prays for us to be, that we would be in the world, but not of the world. This is not something we have a choice in as Christians. This is his prayer for us. He makes it clear that Great Commission Christians will be alienated from the world. He even says right here that the world will hate them, will hate you, will hate us, but that we still need to be in the world. Sometimes when, when the adversary comes, when, when, when trials and tribulations come, we have a temptation as Christians to kind of huddle together and hide. Now, the, 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 the desire to huddle together is a great one, right? And we should. We should come together. We should pray. But the reason we gather is so that we can go into the world. Notice what it is that causes the world to hate us. Do you notice it here in the passage? It's the Word of God. It is the Word of God that causes the world to hate us. Verse 16, or rather 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. See, Jesus is saying, look, I gave them the word, and now they hate them. Why? Because the word causes transformation in the Christian's life that makes the world uncomfortable. The world does not have a problem with Christians who never talk about this. The world does not have a problem with Christians who only gather on Sunday morning and only talk to other people just like them about what they believe. The world does not have a problem with people who say they're Christians but live like the world. In fact, the world kind of loves that. What the world hates is people who have been given the word and transformed by the word into the likeness of the Son. It is the word that makes us different. Church, show me a Christian who lives just like the people of the rest of this world, and I will show you a Christian who spends no time in the word of God. If your life as a Christian looks just like every other person in your neighborhood and at your work and at your kid's school and everything else, then guess what? You don't spend enough time in the Word of God. You are not being transformed by the power of the Word in our lives. Romans 12.2 tells us to not be conformed to this present world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind, Christian, comes through the Word of God. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. Now, at one extreme, this means that we cannot be like liberal or progressive mainline Christians who embrace the ways of the world, right? We, we, we can't do that. It's clear. On the other hand, we also can't take the other extreme and be like the Amish 
and separate away from everything. Because whether we embrace the world or whether we run from the world, Great Commission Christians cannot, cannot join the world. We can't. We can't be like it. We can't be out of it. Or we'll never be able to be what we've been called to be. And that is to be in it but not of it. We must be in but not of the world. In every detail. How we raise our kids. How we make and spend our money. What we do with our free time. How we treat those we consider above us. Or those we consider below us. Every detail of our lives should be transformed by the word of God. And that means we will be of God and in the world. And when the world sees those who are of God, who are in the world but not of it, it gives them an image, a glimpse of who the Son is and who the Father is. And there are those who will come and believe. What is the fourth thing that Jesus prays for us? Jesus prays that we would be growing in holiness. That we would be growing in holiness. The big word here is sanctified. That we would be sanctified. Now what is sanctification? Sanctification is the process by which we grow in our faith. Ultimately, it's the process by which we become more and more like Christ. It is the process that we move in holiness throughout the course of our lives. It is catching up to what God has already declared and made true in our lives, right? When we get saved, he looks at us and says, you are justified by Christ. It's his behavior that gets you in. And then he says, and I have sanctified you, past tense. And so we spend the rest of our lives catching up to what he's already done. That's the process of sanctification. He's already made it so, we just now are catching up to it. Some of us have a longer way to go than others. Some of us have been on this journey for a long time and still have a long way to go. Others of us are certainly closer to glory than others of us even now. There's a process. We grow. It's meant to be growth. Sometimes it's fast and sudden and in sharp bursts. We just kind of climb straight up the cliff. And other times it's a slow walk with very little progress but we do so in him. Now let me just say, this is actually a sub-point of what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. Right? The world is fine if we accept Christ, but then never get sanctified, but then never grow in our faith, never become holy. But he calls us to this. And again, I just want to say, I, we, we can't cover everything in this passage, but we can cover this. Verse 19, Jesus says this. For their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Just before that, verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' prayer for us is that we would be sanctified, that we would be made holy, that we would grow more and more in his image. He's praying that for us. Let me just say, if he's praying for that from us, then, then what obstacles, what hurdles are there going to be? I mean, there'll be some, but are they insurmountable? Are there addictions and struggles and temptations that we continually run into? Absolutely. But he is praying for us. 
He's lifting us up and saying, hey, I know when Pastor Matt gets angry and I am praying for him in those moments. He knows when the temptation to lust is just urging up and, and he's praying for you that you would make it to the other side without sinning. Right? He knows when the temptation to steal or the temptation to be prideful is. He knows in those moments of weakness and he's praying for us. He's lifting us up that we would be growing in holiness. But not only is he praying for us, Go back to verse 19. Here's what he says. For their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. What does it mean when he says I consecrate myself? He's literally saying I am giving myself so that they can be sanctified. Jesus is on the last moments, the last night of his life before he does in fact literally give himself over so that we can be sanctified, so that we can be consecrated. He consecrates himself, and we get the benefit. Church, it's not just that he's praying for us for this. He actually has done the work now to make that happen. He says, Dan, man, I want you to be holy. So you know what he did? He went straight to the cross. Straight to the cross. That's what he's saying here. Not only am I praying for them, but I'm going to do the work that needs to happen so that you and I can be made into his image. He is giving himself over so that we can be sanctified. His life in exchange for ours. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has done what needs to happen. And this is the message of the Great Commission. This is the message that we are meant to speak. It's also the message that we show as we live in unity. It's the message that we show and demonstrate as we live protected lives by the Father, as we live in faith knowing He has us, that He's with us, that He's guarding us. Right? These are the things Jesus is praying for His disciples. These are the things Jesus is praying for you, and these are the things he's calling us to, and he's praying that we would do them. And there are powerful times in prayer when I, I just think about moments over the last couple of years, especially where we as a church have lifted up situations. We've asked the Lord for specific things, and we have seen him do those specific things down to the exact number that we were praying. But a couple of years ago, we prayed. I was praying throughout the year that we would have seven baptisms. It was more baptisms than we had had in any single year at that time. I forgot that I was praying for that halfway through the year and stopped praying for it. And in December, we baptized Dan, who was our seventh baptism that year. And I found my prayer notes just a couple weeks later and was reminded of that. Right? There are things that we pray for, you and I pray for, and we see the results. Church, let me just say this. How much more so Jesus? Right? If he's lifting these things in prayer, then what do we have to fear? What do we have to fight? He's making it happen. 
If you and I can pray for things and see results, how much more so Jesus? How much more so the one who has bought us on the cross, who has given us the life that we never deserved? Church, let me just say, Jesus is praying for you. And you have a decision to make whether you're going to partner in prayer with him, whether you're going to partner in work with him, or whether you're going to crumple those prayers up and throw them in the trash can and say, that's not what I want. What do you choose? You're going to partner in prayer with him and living out what he's already been praying for you for 2,000 years? He's praying for you. He's lifting this up to you. He's calling you. He's commissioned you to be a great commission Christian. I pray that you would join me, join our church together in partnering with that and seeing what Jesus will do as we recognize what he is currently has been praying for us for, for, for all this time. Maybe you don't know Jesus yet. If you don't know Jesus yet, then today's a great opportunity to know Jesus. <laughs> today's a great opportunity to say, you know what? I believe that Jesus has been praying for me. Because that's the thing, right? Verse 20, he says, I'm not just praying for them, the 11 disciples who were faithful. He's praying for all those who they will tell. He's praying for all those who will believe. Which means that he is praying for you right now, even if you don't currently believe but will tomorrow. He's been praying for you for the last 2,000 years. Knowing who you are, knowing that you will believe, knowing that you will come to him, and not a moment has been wasted in any of those prayers. And if that's you, I would urge you, I would invite you today to, to, to turn to him. Turn to the one who's been calling you, praying for you, uh, urging you to come to him, who cares about you, loves you, is praying for you, and is, is giving you a mission, the Great Commission. Church, would you join me in prayer? Right now, God, we thank you so much for what you've done and what you're doing. God, I pray that you would use this time in our lives, Lord, to open our hearts and, and our minds, Lord. And if there's things in this, Lord, that we need to, to, to just see that, that we have been working against your prayers in, I pray that you would convict us of that, show us it. God, if there's any of us in this room right now who don't know you, who haven't known you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day they would choose to know you, to believe in you, to trust in you, God, to receive the prayers that you've been lifting up. God, we thank you so much for what you do in your word, the encouragement that comes from, from just studying. Even when we can't get into it in depth and, and, and in as comprehensive as, as we might otherwise want to, Lord, how much is there? God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you were always leading us and teaching us. Use this word in our lives, Lord, to, to encourage us and build us up, to call us to yourself, to call us into holiness and sanctification, Lord to lay down sin before you, and to trust you with our lives. God, we thank you and we praise you, Lord. Amen.